Hey folks, it's Jeremy. You're listening to Blamo. Greetings from the Arctic Blast or the Arctic Wind Tunnel, Wh- whatever it is. If you're if you're in the the U.S. right now, I mean, good lord, everyone's freezing their freezing their butts off. Uh, I'm currently wearing a down jacket inside of my house because it's negative uh, 10 degrees outside, which uh, is negative 23 Celsius for my non-U.S. folks. So uh, basically it means it sucks outside. That's all there is. W- w- what do you do when it's this cold? Squats? You do jumping jacks? Some sort of indoor activity that lasts five minutes until you end up checking your phone and get lost in some dumb app? I don't know. I'm probably the dude lost in the apps. I did some stuff, tried to kind of warm myself up. Didn't work, still cold. Whatever. I did, however, double down on some reading. You know, try to cozy up in a chair, get a little blanket. Recently finished the book from my guest this week. Uh, yes, Mr. Jesse David Fox. And uh, apart from the fact that I'm a bit jealous that he's a three-name guy, uh, it's an incredible book about the history of comedy from early stand-up to where we are now. It's, it's just, it's, by the way, it's also a really good audiobook. So if you're one of those audible folks, dig into it. Jesse is a writer, he's a podcaster for Vulture, and uh, wait a minute, he's also a watch guy now, and oh, oh boy, did we get into it. Um, it's towards the end of the chat, but man, I think we chatted for like close to two and a half hours or something, but uh, you know, we edited it down for you all. Jesse and I discussed his recent book, Comedy Book, How Comedy Conquered Culture and the Magic That Makes It Work, Imposter Syndrome, Seth Meyers, Todd Snyder Suits, Getting Fits Off in Interviews, and Becoming a Watch Guy. All right, we got Jesse David Fox on Blamo. Let's go, Mr. Jesse David Fox. I'm so I'm so so glad that we're getting to talk. I just finished your book last night. Oh, thank you. I very much appreciate reading the whole book. Well, I had to read your book the way I read books that I actually like, which is I have the digital version. Yeah. Then I have the audio book. Yeah. And then I have the physical book. (laughs) So I have to buy the book about three times. And then do you and you swap back and forth? Yeah, because I mean, and maybe this is because I just do podcasts for a living, but it's like I need I have to I my life has to continue going on, but I need to yeah. I can't read a book and stop and then pick it up mm. again. So I basically, you know, binged, if that's even the thing, your book over the course of like three days because I was I'm listening to it at the gym, I'm reading it at night, but then at night I have to use my Kindle and then, you know, so but yeah, I've heard that a lot. Almost everyone I've known who's read it said they've read it in four days. And I, and I go, wow, you guys are like readers. I, I I don't know if there's any book I've consumed that fast, especially not. Not even Harry well, Potter? I, haven't, I, haven't, I skipped Harry Potter and then made a decision. I don't even remember when I made the decision. It's like, well, if I have kids one day, then then Harry Potter, I'll have to read it. Then it's like, then little did I know when you have a kid nowadays. You have to decide, are you like making them a fan of a person they're going to later despise? Right? Because I am no rolling apologist. Let me be very clear. I absolutely detest every single aspect of what she said about the trans community. And, you know, but fuck, those stories are actually really good. (laughs) I I heard they're really good and I was always excited and made them to watch the movies. But then I actually don't know. I've asked parents what their plan is. In terms of like, will you show them and, and are their parents doing it? Like, because you'd have it as a person who hasn't read them. You're like, well, there are 9,000 books for kids. Yeah. Is is this actually the best one book ever made for kids cross generations? This is going to be the third generation that reads Harry Potter. I mean, well, Gen Alpha, people have been right? doing that with, with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien for eons. But yeah, the, I mean, 
just just to to pronounce all that stuff. I, I think there's a there's a very there's a very specific world building that happens in the Harry Potter books. And I think also there's this other situation into which, at least for my wife and I, because like I read those books as an adult. I mean, I was living in New York when, you know, they were taking over this the Soho Scholastic bookstore or whatever. Um, and I bought the book and I I read the last book and, you know, and all the the spoilers of everything that happened, yeah, yeah. blank dying or blank living. And, um, and it was like a game changer for me, but I don't, that's, I don't know if there's any, cause my parents were like that with, with Chronicles of Narnia yeah, into yeah. which they were like, oh, we read, we read these. I mean, there's no way they read it as they were coming out. They were born in the fifties, but like that, like them showing me that, but showing me the BBC thing. I think it's a, it's a weird thing that happens into which parents want to have this connection with their kids based on literature that they also remember as a kid. Yeah. 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 And then there's the fact of many people especially for kids stuff like you try to separate the art from the artist like i read my kids dr seuss books and the dude was kind of a slime ball to, you know which i didn't oh, really. I never do that yeah i started reading dr yeah. seuss now that i have a kid and i'm like this is amazing yeah, right he's like the greatest writer ever well i was so jealous yeah. i was like i I was reading, I read the things you may think over and over again. It's very short. And I go like, this is the type of writing I want to do where it just, you're just flowing. Yeah. And he's like, well, I don't, no real word rhymes with this. So I'll make up a word. And <laughs> he, and the fact he also drew, was the draw, he drew those things. It's what a gift. I don't want to know anything. He's actually the one person See? I was like, I, and that's the thing too, is I'll like, you got to separate the art from the artist and if for, for kids books and someone's, yeah. someone will listen to this and I'll take all the heat. Into which it's like, well, you shouldn't, and da da da. And there's all these other people. I agree, but also when you're when you're reading books to kids, it it's like it's like giving them goldfish. There's there's they just consume more and more and more, and so you're yeah. just looking for volume. Because the other artists, or not artists, but the other author I recommend to every parent is Mac Barnett. And Mac Barnett's mm-hmm. a friend of mine. He's written tons and tons of stuff. Does things with John Clausen, who's an amazing illustrator. Um, but I think Mac Barnett is probably one of the best like kids and young and like young kid writers. Um, he does these really good zines called first cat in space. Um, mm. I mean, they're books, they're graphic. Novels. I definitely recognize these eyes. I, oh yeah. Shape eyes. Yeah. The shape Island turned shape. Island turned into an Apple TV show. Oh, that's um, why I recognize it. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's so, so, so good. And it's, it's newer, yeah. but you have a kid, right? Yeah. How, how old are they? Six months old. Okay. So you're in it. Yeah. 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 I'm in it. This is, well, I was more compared to what in it was like five months ago. It's like, oh, that was like casual or whatever. But you're getting, <laughs> you're getting like reciprocation of, you're yeah, getting yeah. eye contact and affection. Yeah. Yeah. I wake, uh, I wake them up and then, uh, in the morning and it's like the happiest thing that's ever happened to anything I've ever, like they are happier than, um, anyone has ever been i've ever experienced it it's like and that's every morning so yes i'm getting they're like you're here still yeah so yes where five months there's like a blob that you just blob around yeah the best thing that i don't think anyone told me about becoming a parent is when your kids get older Mm -hmm. and you get the opportunity to introduce them to things that you care about and all of a sudden you find out whether or not they're into it most of the time they are because you care about it. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I'm, you know, to to jump on comedy stuff too, I remember when my parents showed me Faulty Towers. Mm. And obviously 99% of it at the time was way over my head. But like episodes like The Kipper and the Corpse, I mean, it was like John Cleese at his prime, in my opinion, because, you know, obviously the 
Monty Python stuff was a little oh, bit sure. a little bit inappropriate for me as a uh, seven or eight year old kid. But seeing, you know, Basil Fawlty fall down the stairs, you know, it was incredible. It, it is a testament to com- people writing comedies that work on multiple levels, right? Because it's like I watched In Living Color as a kid, right? That was the, sort of the first thing I watched. And I, I don't know how young I was, but in my head, I was quite young, four or five or whatever. Yeah. And all it is is the first time you see an adult do something that silly, right? Yeah. It's like, and you don't know anything they're talking about. You don't know enough words to know what are curse words or not. And that is, it's a testament to like, not just trying to write to what you think is like smart, sophisticated comedy. Like it's, you know, like the Simpsons is probably the best example because Simpsons like, we're going to try to put all types of comedy into this show. Yeah. Um, Except for they didn't do scatological stuff for the first few decades. But like, otherwise they're like, it's going to be falling down. It's going to be violent. It's also going to be like a reference to like the snobbiest thing you can ever think of. It's going to be also the reference to like the most mass cultural thing. Or it's going to be a reference to like a deep cut TV show from like 30 years ago. And then as a result, like different people will lash onto different things. And it's, and we are so far removed from comedy being that way because now it's just like everything's so hyper-targeted. It's like comedy now to, I imagine, a young kid is like, oh, I watch a TikTok account from this one person in one country who plays the same video game idea or whatever. Yeah. And has all these references to it. And I imagine that's very satisfying. But um, there was something of like, oh, we're all going to watch The Simpsons and I only like this part. And you also like it. And then we can, we're not at, where now you wouldn't even think to have things that you would share. But like, it is nice for comedy to be like, okay, it's going to be smart and it's going to be stupid and it's going to be um, a character with a funny voice and a character with a funny walk. And then, so then a kid watches and it's like, oh, I just like that show where the person walks funny. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching Animaniacs and Freakazoid with my mom and she would laugh harder than I would because, you know, there was an episode called Woodstock Slappy, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And it was basically, spoiler alert, um, Slappy was the squirrel. She had, you know, this attitude problem at at all times. She, you know, was basically like the equivalent of like some sort of curmudgeon. And Woodstock was happening right outside of her tree. Mm -hmm. And The Who plays a show and everything goes nuts. And basically, you know, there's a big violent climactic ending of the stage collapsing on, you know, everyone, which now is probably not a joke. But, you know, the stage collapsed on everyone and Slappy's fine. And she laughs and goes, you know, and my mom would just laugh her ass off. And I didn't know what was going on other than the fact that it was like a band called The Who, which I wasn't really that familiar with, Mm -hmm. was on stage playing as loud as they could. You know, so Pete Townsend, all these characters. And like that to me, because I think a lot of people think of Bluey like this now. And the fact that like Bluey, you can watch as an adult um, and, and find some funny things and kids like it too. But Animaniacs to me, I think was where I got into comedy and just like slapstick silliness. Um, Yeah. And references to things you would, they would have no idea what they're talking about. Oh, absolutely. And there is something about like, Animaniacs, Animaniacs did the same thing like The Simpsons did, which was like, even more so, like, they're obsessed with old Hollywood, so there'd be all yeah. these jokes. So I, like, you le- is like a way of learning tropes without having to learn the names of anybody. So, like, I don't have any experience with old Hollywood, really, at all. But if you make a reference to a scene from a, fa- a famous movie, yeah, I will know, it will be, it's sort of like, I triangulate it, right? So it's like, I know the comedy joke you're making, because I I have a history with that reference, even though I don't, I've never seen whatever the movie is where people have like, they're on a carousel or something and they have a showdown. I know it's a famous scene from a famous movie, but I actually 
So that and so Loki recreated it recently, and I just know it because Animaniacs have done a version of it. Yeah, but I, I don't know what the movie is. Even though, again, I assume many people listening are like, "It's blah." Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I don't. The problem is like, and there's certain people who are like, "We'll watch these things and be like, oh, I should learn these things.' That must be such a fun way of digging deeper into culture." Where I think a lot of times it's like, "Yeah, I got enough. All I needed to know from that movie is like, what is the one joke everyone makes about it." So then it's like, if I have that already, then it's just part of a, like, I, I never did improv comedy, but I imagine there's a lot of improv comedians who were doing that. We're like, I don't, I've never seen this movie, but I know the type of scene you're doing, right? It's like, you can do a lot of sketch writing where it's like tropes on tropes. So you don't actually have to have seen like whatever mob movies or film noir, right? I think like a lot of film noir parodies are written by people who don't actually watch those things. And sometimes it could work, but I guess it's probably better if you're actually like, have a fluency in the um, medium. But yeah, Animaniacs was, I feel like I'll see old Hollywood actors or like, like it's like a, a Catherine Hepburn, right? So it's like, mm-hmm. I, don't, I knew what she sounded like. I knew what an impression of Catherine Hepburn was. So then when you heard her real voice or Jamie Stewart, same thing, you're like, wow, they really talked like that. That's yeah. so weird. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. I remember, yeah, I heard Dana Carvey's impression of Jamie Stewart for years before I watched a Jamie, Jamie Stewart movie. And I'm like, wow, he really just sounds like that cartoon impression. It's, it's crazy because like this is a thing I wrestle with a lot now where it's like, how do you, you know, because for your career and job, you're constantly exploring the medium of comedy, the evolution of comedy, you know, yeah. also while reconciling your own life and past and worldview and, you know, just just you being a human. Right. And the thing that I wrestle with the most where it's like right now I'm at this age in my life where I'm actually not into anything new. Mm-hmm. Like I have watched Heavyweights and House Guest 700,000 times, sure. you know, and like I'll put that on and watch it. The same, you know, I think The Office is a great example, which you talked about a lot too, in which you just turn it on. Like it's 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 like our generation's cheers and you're just like, it's on, you know, Seinfeld is, and because you, you talk about that too and, and the, the fact of like kind of this like death of monoculture yeah. into which now I know people who are learning about old movies like there's a tiktok video of uh clips from trading places and people are like this is so funny what movie is it you know but that they get the one joke and they move on and so part of me is like five year old movie right it's a 40 year old movie why would they no wait when i was their age i wasn't like thinking about comedies from the 1970s other than like if my parents showed me it it's like cool then then i would but if i'm if my parents didn't like that movie i wouldn't know about that movie yeah so it's like how do you approach new you know, I'm air quoting comedy and the evolution of it when I think as we get older, we're, we're more and more set in our ways. Yeah. I mean, I think comedy, I, I don't know if this would have been the case if I had dedicated my life to any of these things, but it's like in my 20s, I liked a lot of new things. I like new music. I like new restaurants. Yep. Um, I think that's actually it. I just like new, new TV shows, new comedy, new music, new restaurants. And now my ability to hear new music has dropped exponentially like it's it's done like i'm fine if people like people write a negative review about the new national album I'm like i'm sorry they're only the, one of the 20 bands i remember yeah i used to this mattered to me and i would have agreed but um yeah and so and then restaurants i'm like you live long enough you're like oh a lot of these restaurants aren't actually good it sucks <laughs> you wish they were because it'd be amazing you the fantasy if you live in new york and there's always new good restaurants and then you're like oh actually a lot of them are not good um or they're fine and they, you don't need them but comedy partly because i have this sort of i think quite deep relationship to it intellectually that like i i don't need i think a lot of people get older and they'll be like like, this isn't new. Someone blank was doing that yeah. 18 years ago. 
Yeah. And and I now know, at least with comedy, that like Blank was doing it 18 years ago. And someone 18 years ago was being like, this is not new. Blank was doing it 18 years before that or whatever. Yeah, like Mel Brooks, and Chaplin, et cetera. Yeah. It's all parts of this, you know, like if you give people enough time, they'll find different ways of, you know, expressing cer- certain perspectives on comedy, right? So it's like, so then I'll see a person and there just is something really exciting about about i wouldn't even describe it new it's just sort of this is a specific brain that has not existed in comedy before mm-hmm. because just because everyone's an individual and everyone if you, if you can express your individuality in any way in their comedy or often i'll see a comedian a few years in and they'll have a set that's 10 minutes long and like 30 seconds of it they're an individual and that 30 seconds of it i'll think about for a week or two weeks until i see them again and i hope that 30 seconds of their originality will s- stretch out and then next thing you know um, they make the whole plane out of the black box or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Where, where it's like, next, you know, they all they do 10 minutes and it's all, what was that 30 seconds? And if I know that comedian or I'm friendly with him or I've interacted with them, I'll try to be like, I'll compliment just the 30 seconds. I won't say that. I won't. I've now said this sentence enough that I, I'm nervous now comedians will know that I'm doing it. But if a comedian does something that I feel like expresses who they are individually, I will, I'll try to compliment it. So that that always has happened. And I don't need to understand references because I've, as you said, like, I know what it sounds like when someone does a good specific reference that I don't need to get it. So like, they'll reference whatever the culture is now and I'll get that. And the only thing that's been hard is young comedians talk about dating a lot. Mm. And as I, as I am not dating, it's somewhat hard for me to be like, who cares about this? But I, I have to remember dating is important when you're young. So that's what it is. It's just sort of like, and I imagine this with any art form, which is there still is new. Now there's so much not, and it's easy to be cynical, but I've done it long enough that you've seen cycles of new, exciting, oh, it kind of gets watered down or it gets boring or people get opportunities. And there's like, especially living in New York, Mm -hmm. the new has not caught up um, to the, you know, like essentially like what happens in New York on cycles, which is like every few years, a crew of people will bubble up and they'll be great. And you're like, wow, what a time to live in New York. And then they all will move to LA or (laughs) 90% of them move to LA. Yeah, And the people that stay become the king and queen of the scene or whatever. And then they headline every single show. But then there will be a gap before the next crew of people emerge where you're like, comedy's dead. Oh no, comedy's dead. There's no new comedians. And then six months, a year and a half pass, new crew, same thing over. So I've seen that cycle happen enough time. So now I'm currently in that cycle of waiting for whatever what's next. But because I know it will happen, it's so exciting. You'd be like, anytime I'm going to go to a show, and I might see one joke and it'd be like, oh, that's the entire future of comedy is going to be this. I don't know it yet. If I, but it, I know it will happen. Um, so there's this comedian, Sabrina Wu. Uh, they just had a Netflix 10 minute or whatever those um, new Netflix things are. Netflix is now doing a show of comedians doing 10 minutes in a row. Oh, like, which like is the wild. Comedy Central variety stuff. I know. The thing about Netflix is they they spent zillions of dollars to just reinvent basic television rules. But <laughs> so now, true. so now instead of doing them as little clips, they're <laughs> yeah. playing them in order. I have no idea why they decided to do it. I'm sure there's some statistic reasons. Anyway, so Sabrina has a joke about promoting the movie jo- Joyride, which they're in. And and I saw that joke and I go, I wonder if they'll do this joke on TV because it is somewhat cynical about um, Hollywood and like making it being famous uh-huh. and acknowledging the sort of like bullshit of press and interviews and how people um, commodify people of marginalized identities. And I was like, I wonder if they'll do it on TV because 
it's really funny and exciting. However, um, it's not good for your career, maybe. Because mm. people are like, we wanted to commodify you and you won't <laughs> let yourself be commodified? Um, <laughs> and so they did on the Netflix thing. It's really great. But like, that was a thing where I saw it and I go, and, and I believe they're the first Gen Z comedian to have like stand up on Netflix. Oh. Just by the nature of Gen Z is still too young for enough of them to be on TV. Yeah. But uh, same thing like what Aziz was to millennials, which was like, someone has to be 24 and get on TV while everyone waits until they're 29. But yeah. anyway, so it was just sort of like, well, that's exciting. This is, there's a spirit to this that is not unlike what alternative comedians were doing 30 years ago. But it's a new version of it. And it's an exciting thing. So that's like, oh, maybe this is sort of where things are going. Um, so uh, the sort of cycles of like, uh, <laughs> long way of saying, like, I, I I now ride that wave and I'm like into it. Um, and I, I And I think I also have patience for comedy I don't like. And I think in a way that I think a lot of people reasonably don't because you you have only so much time in the day. You're going to watch comedy you don't like, but like I'll see a show and if I don't like a comedian or they not, don't like, like this comedian's not for me, I'll have something to watch because I'll be like, oh, what is the audience connecting to in this? You know, and and that's interesting to me, right? It's like going to a museum. I be like, if you approach a comedy show like you would a museum, you're not like, oh, I hate looking at this thing. I, You know, like you'll look at it and be like, why is this art? Then you read the little blurbies or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You could do that with anything <laughs> that's allowed for all types of con- consumption so i'd kind of do that with comedy which is like okay well what is the i invent the blurby in my brain but it's like oh cool so that's what's happening this is where society's at this is what 24 year olds feel are interesting yeah i was like that with so when my wife and i first met she loved like the tim and eric style comedy cool, stuff. yeah yeah you know any of that i mean this was a long time ago but she loved awesome show she loved um crimbus you know it was like she wanted to celebrate crimbus for listeners it was tim and eric's uh christmas special that they did where they made up a holiday similar to christmas etc and um i didn't get it and i was like this is dumb i think this is so stupid it doesn't make any sense to me because again like my idea of comedy was like watching big trouble in little china and and Mm. and just seeing jack burton run around or beverly hills ninja tommy boy any like anything in that like kind of 90s or early 90s era and I was just like this makes no sense and over time as I became closer with her and started to like fall in love with her I mean full transparency I was like okay I think I need to look at this from try to look at this from her perspective oh yeah yeah and now I am I mean I love it I mean I think they're I think Tim Heidecker's a genius I think you know all those guys were way ahead of their time I mean you know, and it was the same thing recently with I Think You Should Leave, where I had mm. all of my friends, because I have a bunch of friends that work in, you know, the industry, and they're like, oh my gosh, this is so good. And, you know, I was in the writer's room on this, and all, you know, so I have all these personal connections that I'm basically lying to myself, trying to, to you know, to watch it and be like, oh yeah, this is really funny. Oh, I get yeah. the irony of, of he just can't close a door. And he's, you know, all of these things. And what I realize is like, I'm only able to truly enjoy comedy when I stop looking at it from this like analytical perspective Mm -hmm. and look at it from this like empathetical perspective. Because I love comedy from, you know, the stuff of Tim and Eric because it makes me think of Elizabeth. Or it makes me think of, you know, some friend or some other friend that I'm like looking to have a connection to. And then I realize at the end of the day is like, you know, so I'm I'm dealing with a lot of family issues. My father is slowly passing away, all the, you know, all these things. And then I realize at the end of the day is like, oh my God, fuck, comedy is just helping me grieve. Yeah, yeah. 
And it hit me like a ton of bricks. (laughs) Well, it's helping you connect to people. It's also like the idea that I write about in the book is that like we as a species, comedy is an extension of laughter or whatever. And we laugh as species the same reason other animals laugh, which is something social as it relates to other people and in a sort of like play related state. So it definitely makes sense. You're just very literalized what I write in the book as a sort of abstracting, which is just sort of like, oh, if I want to be like playful with my wife or my friends, then I need to like the comedy. Like, which is like what happens to like 10 year olds <laughs> when they don't, when like 10 year olds don't know to have taste, right? They're just like, yeah. my friend likes something. So they're like, I like to like a thing my friend likes. And your brain is doesn't have all these things that be like individuality yet or whatever. So you're like, okay, well, that's enough reason to like something. They're laughing. I like to laugh. Like, it is it's a completely normal thing and but there is something so um that ability to do that to almost it you think of it as tricking your brain but it's actually like untricking your brain mm. like the the brain your brain played a trick on you that made you think like you are a specific person with a psychology or whatever which is correct but like <laughs> essentially that is a byproduct of um what we think of a civilization or whatever that means but like really you're just like a primate yeah. who wants to get along with the people that you care and trust um but i like that you're able to do it because i think a lot of people will just go like that's not funny and that's and be done with it but it's like well the person you love finds it funny and you love them so like you can figure out your way in right wait wait wait, wait a second i gotta get my bids in on the bezel app but more on that in, in a minute i get all sorts of emails and questions from you all which i love to read and respond and one thing i constantly get and even read in the blamo slack is what watch should i buy and where should i get it It's a wild world out there with all sorts of websites and shops, but I go to Bezel. Bezel is the trusted marketplace for buying and selling your next luxury watch with expert in-house authentication on every purchase. First off, folks, it's getbezel.com. That's getbezel.com. But I use and recommend Bezel because it's the best of both worlds. You can go to the site and browse a marketplace of luxury watches, over 16,000 of them, by the way, which is a lot. And I know that Bezel is going to authenticate your purchase. Or you can create an account and get connected with your own private client advisor called the concierge. Because look, making a watch purchase can be confusing, especially when you don't know all the reference numbers. When was this made? Did they use ceramic then? Is it a triple lop, dingle top? You know, what the heck? I don't even know. But they do at Bezel, and they're here to help. Concierge, baby. Look, if looking for your watch to mark a special occasion, or maybe you're just doing research, right? They even have their own journal where you can learn all the ins and outs about Bezel and the brands and all the stuff that's happening right now. But back to my bids. Yes, Bezel now has auctions, and not just any auctions. They got Rolex, they got Cartier, they got Audemars Piguet, all the big dogs, and more. So you can discover, bid, and know the Bezel team has got your back with verified in-house authentication. So visit getbezel.com on your smartphone or computer. Bezel, the trusted marketplace for buying or selling your next luxury watch. And I think like that's the thing too. And you know, and I'm curious because you've also, you know, you've dealt with a lot of 
different yeah. levels of of trauma throughout your life. Sure. And do you feel that your your understanding of comedy and empathy helped you process and grieve your own pain? And like, and that thus you became more attached to it? I, I mean, like, I think the partly, but I think it's also like, there's a lot of reasons I probably like comedy. And again, I like music. And sure. but it's like, so part of it is a brain chemistry thing of like, this, this works for you. I think it's also like, um, how would I put it? You know, like when I think of, I, when I think of sad times over the last 10 years or whatever, mm-hmm. funerals or any sort of things that with my family, I, I do imagine, like I do, the things I will remember about them often will be like laughing with right. my, my parents or something about a thing that happened. Not a thing about a thing that happened, but like a thing, a thing around it or like there's so much like anything with comedy does when things are sort of like too serious or too overly sincere or there is a sort of like rules that you're supposed to follow of like this has how you're supposed to everyone has to be so solemn. Like when there's anything like that, a, a person with a sort of more comedy leaning brain would be like, I got to mix. This is too heavy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I need a puncture hole of it. I think there is, Um, I remember I was talking to Mark Marin, and he goes, there's just some people that when people are trying to be serious at them, their instinct is to make a joke. Yeah, that's and me. And I think, and, yeah, and I think that, and I, when he put it that way, I was like, oh, it's actually quite simple. Like that is like, there are just people that are like that. And I think I, I, I've had that. And I think comedians have a really intense version of it, um, where comedians have a really hard time with sincerity. Like, um, I I think of it as I sort of, I describe it as like red hot sincerity, where the, a comedian, the closer and closer they get to s- sincerity, the more they sort of retract from it. Like, if they're like, oh no, I'm getting being too sincere. I have to like bounce in the other direction. And in some ways that's sort of, who knows what, why people have that instinct. But I think what that also does is... Um, and this is how I write about it in the book. Um, I think it's the Victor Frankl quote, which is something about humor, allows us... A, Man's Search for Meaning, one of the greatest books of all time. Yeah, yeah. Allows us, in a, you know, allows us an aloofness. Now, aloofness can be bad or good, but, like, it does help you elevate out and sort of see things from a distance. It's just sort of like... I think a lot of therapeutic things do not relieve um, entirely. They don't remove pain. They just make it lighter. And I think that is like ultimately, I think how I see it and how what it feels like, which is not like things go away. It's just sort of the burden of it is lighter on on you. And I think that is like comedy. When you think of like, I think think that's sort of comedy's gift. It's sort of like, it makes things easier. It doesn't make things all better. It's just sort of like, oh, this is a lighter load. I can live my life while still having this, you know? Yeah. And I think um, I've I've learned that through personal experience and I learned that through observing other people's experience or watching comedians talk about hard subjects. And I'm like, how, why do we allow comedians to do this? Um, where art about these things usually is not treated this way. And it's because um, we realize, or certain people realize like, oh, there's something really wonderful to not have to worry about the things you're worrying about. Yeah, I mean, there. did you read Mel Brooks' book? I'm trying to remember. I started it. It's it called All About Me. Yeah. Yeah, and I started it while researching the book. And I think I listened to half the audiobook and then I stopped because I realized I was, the first long, let's say six months or five months of my book writing process mm-hmm. was what I thought was doing research, but I realized was procrastinating. 
Nice. Um, so I just would be consuming all of these memoirs and whatever about comedy, and none of it was going to go into the book, and none of it was revelatory. And I was like, "But this is important." And I was like, "Oh wait, no! All I'm, all I'm doing is putting off when I have to write sentence one." So I think that was a time. Where I think that's when I re- made the realization, where it's just like, "Well, Mel Brooks is kind of outside the scope of this book. Um, he already put out this book, so there's not going to be a need for a lot of Mel Brooks content." Um, so anyway, that's my long answer to be like, no, I haven't finished it. Well, he he does a quote in there that I think really like lit me up because um, so like I've been, you know, I mentioned the Faulty Towers thing where I've yeah. found myself lately just watching Faulty Towers a bunch yeah. because I just kind of like wish my dad was with me. And, you know, there's a quote he says, he says, comedy is a powerful component of life. He says, it has the most to say about the human condition, because if you laugh, you can get by. You can struggle when things are bad if you have a sense of humor. And then he says, which is like knocks me on my seat, where he says, laughter is a protest scream against death, against the long goodbye. It's a defense against unhappiness and depression. And I was like, fuck. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'm in some ways, I kind of numb myself, Mm. you know, and I can like process pain and trauma because I'm creating this empathetic connection to something that they loved, which is one thing. And that can be comedy, music, art, whatever. But then I am, I'm able to examine things that are so much more difficult for me to do because I'm looking at it through a comedy sense. Like I remember um, my, my grandpa, when my, when my grandma died, I didn't, you know, I'm always, I've always just been a bit of an idiot in in general. And um, in the funeral, there was a little thing outside, which was like a sign. And it said like heart chapel one or whatever. And I changed it to like fart chaps. Mm. And, um, you know, like in Faulty Towers, right? Where they would always change the sign. And I remember he was so fucking mad and I just didn't know what to do. And I just left it there. And I was like, this is so funny. I change it to fart. Like I am, I am, you know, and I was like 27, you know, like it it wasn't like I was a kid. I was very much an adult and knew better, but I, I just like white knuckled this in a way that it just helped me kind of reexamine, you know, and it, it, I don't, I mean, I wasn't being disrespectful, obviously, but it was just like, she would think it was funny. I made a fart joke, you know? <laughs> but also, yeah, I mean, disrespect is such an interesting thing because it's like, the the only reason people think, like, comedy was not necessarily always seen as disrespectful. Well, yeah, yeah. Right? So it's like, it's just that is a sort of post rules of etiquette conception of like laughter and being funny and like, but like 200 years ago or whatever, I don't think necessarily, and, and it's like culturally specific, right? Like I think other cultures like don't think at all, don't think uh, grief at all. They don't even like process loss as a thing you grieve. It's like a thing you celebrate, right? So it's like, yeah, that's very true. Just the idea that what you were doing is inappropriate is, you know, culturally specific and, and rooted in this idea that like comedy is a sort of lowbrow thing that has been so, um, that is so built into a sort of conception of like highbrow and lowbrow that like you just assume it. But like, that wasn't the case 200 years ago. It was, you know, like in the past comedy and drama, it wasn't like, well, drama is this high thing and comedy is this low thing. That is all was an invention of the aristocracy, the American aristocracy or whatever of yeah. in the late um, 1800s. And once you realize that, then you're like, oh, then like, there's, that's not, inter- that's not disrespectful. That's just the, that's, if that's, if you think comedy is a high thing, then it's being respectful to talk about it in that way, to make that joke. Yeah. Because then you're being yourself. Yeah. And it's, it's so my, my daughter, you know, she's, she's going to be six tomorrow. Yeah. And, um. Happy birthday. Yeah. Yeah. And last night, you know, I don't know, things were awkward, whatever. Um, 
and she's just being a kid and she's dancing around in the living room and she's playing with uh my son her younger brother and all of a sudden she's making fart jokes and i was so fucking mad and i was like stop i was like stop what are you doing and then later in the evening i felt like such a jerk because i realized she was just trying to make an uncomfortable situation comfortable yeah and i'm like oh no this is me because as I was preparing for this conversation, I was like, no, I was like, I'm my grandpa. I was like, shit. I was like so embarrassed. And it's like, I wanted to drive back to school and be like, make all the fart jokes you want. It's okay. Oh, <laughs> it's also just so funny because like, no matter what you do, you just like become Homer Simpson and the kid becomes Bart Simpson. Right? Like, you, because it's partly like, <laughs> because like you fell into the trap of there you know she was just being like the rebel and ba if you said this is great it almost would diffuse the power of what she was doing oh too but instead, okay. you yeah. fell into the role that she she needed you to now who knows what that means in real life but it's hard <laughs> for me not to hear that being like well of course you said stop because if you didn't then she would have stopped yeah yeah it's true <laughs> I don't know. It's it's I I think about that stuff so much and I I especially just through my upbringing and and you know yeah. like your book I think really hit a lot of ways where you know it it made me I hope you write it something else that's more of a closer examination and magnification of you in your life because I think your perspective of how you were understanding something just made me want to connect with you individually deeper on that. That that's beautiful. I don't know if I have it in me. I mean, there are some when we pitched the book, some people like, could it be more memoir? And I was like, I I don't know. This is kind of like that's book two. The amount that's of, the bigger advance. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like, but it's like I only have these stories and this memory, and um, that's the thing. It's like I these are examples that fit. It's like I didn't have like examples where it's just sort of like you know I'm just a kid hanging out with my parents and we're like going on vacation. It's like a, it is a funny thing, which is like you know you write a book and it has these things, and it's like sad things are in this book, other things are in this book, yeah. you know, yeah. and then people ask you about it, and you're like, yeah. But also, like, I just, like, went to school and learned multiplication, and then I went home, and, like, my <laughs> my mom made um, shrimp in the toaster oven or whatever. And it's, like, well, it's just sort of, like, we, uh, there was, like, popcorn shrimp or something. But it's, like, I don't, like, I don't know. So, like, almost all stories I have are in this book. And there's not even that many stories in it. They're all comedy-related, because, like, that's... I think as my brain, as we get older, our brain prunes. And it's, like, okay, well, I have to keep all the things comedy-related in my entire life. Um this is all to say, I don't think, I don't know if I have a memoir in me, but that's very nice that you um, think I do. Well, I think to me, that was the bigger thing is I was like, oh, this guy, in order to process his own life and figure out stuff that he's experienced, he chose to really understand a medium. But what that, what you ended up doing in, from my perspective is basically just have the most Freudian self-examination of your own grief because you were just trying to figure out what was it but at the end of the day i feel like that's your stand-up bit because what what you know what when you talk yeah. about comedy and all these people and what made it special was that the, you know in, in your discussion of truth right in which you talk about oh no this was true this is a real thing yeah, that they yeah. experienced and so as a, a a reader listener whatever i could i could connect to that because I, I i have a connection with that versus someone got your coffee order wrong you know it was so personal yeah. Yet so vague, it it made me want to work to connect with you deeper. And then I was like, oh, shit, there it is. And I was like, mm. you know, and so that that really, ex, you know, gave me a lot of excitement. And especially listening to, you know, because I've seen tons of your conversations with other people and, and, and other podcasts and stuff that you've been on. And it just it, you know, I would just uh, 
lovingly encourage you to continue this this journey. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's like um uh, I will I will accept that. I will I'll take that in. And I, it's like um it's a few things. One it's like when I I wrote the book or I wrote draft and the my fact checker mm-hmm. who also was just like another reader was like she was like by the end of the book the reader would like to know more about you. I was like oh that's interesting. They like it, but like they are curious who is this person who is thinking about this so much. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, not because I had a aversion to talking about, well, not as a, not because I had a principle against talking about myself, right? I wasn't like, oh, journalists should be like detached, blah, blah, blah. I didn't know how to do that. I only knew how to write with my sort of specific voice. Mm-hmm. But I think it was just sort of like, um, Honestly, it was partly like, if I write about personal stuff, people will ask me about it in interviews. Fair. And then I have to talk about it. Where it's like, <laughs> in some ways, I was like, well, I can write it. It's not hard to write whatever. Um, in a sort of like basic sense of like, I, I can dictate things in my life. And hopefully by the end of the sentence, I'll think of something profound to say. But like, um, there is a reason, you know, I mostly, I do like proper interviewing when I interview. Because it's like. Sure. Oh, I knew the sort of like bounds of sort of a conversation I can have. And it's like, and I was like, oh, if it's out in the world, people are going to like want to talk to me about it, which is like, in some ways that's scary, but also ways it's exciting because then you can have like people have profound relationships to the thing that you're creating and you can be helpful to them, which is nice. But it's also like, um, I don't want to say the word scary because it's a cliche, but it is. Um, I, I think it's fair to say it's scary. It's I know. Intimidating. I just, it's intimidating. It is like a lot, right? You're like, where someone goes like, I thought this thing you wrote in the book was funny, right? There's jokes in the book. Yeah. I'm like, great. This is my favorite thing to hear. I, I know exactly what you're saying, which is like, you found this funny. I can receive it. And then it's like, end of conversation. That is like, that's been my favorite response so far when people found certain sentences funny where everything else, it's like, oh, okay. Um, it's um, maybe being vague right now, but it is like, um, it's, there's a reason why I took the, it, I was like, okay, if you read a whole book, you can know about me a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think that's how I thought of it. You read, you read, this book is, 368 pages long. I asked if it could be 369 pages long because I like the sort of math symmetry of 369. Oh, I thought it was and a 69 joke. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. And never. And then my my publisher was like, that's not how books work. <laughs> there are. That's bullshit. There, you, there's no rules of how books work. No, there's printing. There's printing rules. Oh, okay. Oh, there's only many. There's only so many I amount of pages. <laughs> and so you can't have odd amount of pages because a, a book you know, it's like one side, one side, yeah. one side, one side. Fair. I learned so much about publishing from this, which is, um, and that was one where I was like, oh, just make it 369 pages. Like you can't put one page. Anyway, um, maybe I'll write in people's book. This is the, on the lat, on the jacket. Oh yeah. Flag. Like artist anyway. edition or yeah. author edition. Yeah. Fro- <laughs> like, Freudian slip page there. 369. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it is like, it's something I struggle with. Um, and I just don't know. I think like, I think ultimately my value is, to society. There's a big thing when I decided to write the book was I think there's better writers out there in terms of like beautiful poety writers out there. Sure. And um, why do I need to write a book? I can just live my life and and I'm doing things already that are providing comedy journalistic content to people. And and I justified it being like, I think, well, I have all these ideas and it'd be useful if they're all together mm-hmm. to help people understand these ideas. And I think if they read all these ideas with an open mind, it will help them appreciate comedy better. Mm-hmm. And my personal stories were really just as a 
as a sort of hopefully as a conduit so a person can then have a sort of deeper relationship to comedy and then whatever so it's like when i think of writing a memoir which i don't think about doing because i don't think um i offer people enough to justify them paying for it right oh, i was like wow. oh, people are gonna pay listen to how I, you no, examine that though I don't, and this and that's not like and i really this is not imposter syndrome i think this is like a very basic analysis of my life a lot of people have hard things going for them and are beautiful writers uh-huh. i think if i have anything worth paying for it is my collection of observations about comedy well yeah but you're, and, you're putting a monetary and value. ability to be co- Huh? You're putting a monetary value on your life. It's kind of no, only on the book. Ah, uh, fair. I'm, putting, I'm not demanding like it's. It's just like someone has to buy a book. That mm-hmm. to me is so wild. You can read things I write for free, or my podcast. You can listen to it for free, yeah. and like you're getting some of it. So it's like if you're gonna buy a thing, you're gonna get this book for Christmas or Hanukkah, or you're gonna get it for your birthday, yeah, yeah. or someone thought of you when they saw the book, and I go. Well, one, it should be, it can't be pessimistic, which is not against, I'm not anti-cynicism and there's some cynicism in the book, but like, I'm not anti-cynicism. I just felt it was weird to have a person pay for a book that says like, that thing you might like is bad. I'm not saying, and I don't even think that perspective is wrong to have. I just felt weird having people pay for it. So I was like, okay, well, they're buying the book. Mm-hmm. They should, their life should be better as a result for it. And I don't know if I can make the same justification for a memoir. And I don't, this is not self-deprecating. I just think it's like, I'd have to be like, oh, this is really entertaining. And I don't know if I, I think that about my own life. Well, I mean, give again, it some more time. I mean, maybe you'll get I'll give there. it some more time. Maybe something will happen and I'll be like, got it. I can write a memoir about my year of saying no. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that I walked away with, too, that I mean, I literally wrote down, I had to pull up the notes while you're talking, is you wrote, we process our lives through art. And I was like, oh, shit. I was like, that's so true. I think your perception is correct. I think it is sort of like when that is the sort of like, even in the book, I acknowledge sort of like the traumatic things that happen. But I also have sentences where I'm like, there's more than one reason why people become one thing, right? It's Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. I was talking to Zainab Johnson. And I go, people like to, I go, I assume the number one question you get is, are you a comedian because you're one of 13 kids? And I'm not going to ask that question. Yeah. And then I asked some sort of sideways question because the her 12 siblings are not comedian, right? So it's like, you can't be like, oh, the reason I'm a comedian is because I'm one of 13 kids because there's 12 other examples of people who are not that. Mm-hmm. But the reason she is who she is is partly that she was one of 13 kids. Like, and I do think, so I think art is sometimes an explicit, I'm making a show about grief because I experienced it. And sometimes if you do it well, and I don't think this book necessarily does this, my book, <laughs> you, uh, you can't help but show yourself. Like I, th- like, I think my belief is even if I didn't include those personal stuff, certain people would see the book and realize there's a way in which I look at things that is rooted in things that happen in my life. But, mm-hmm. um, and I was fine with that. But then, I'll, then I got this note, and and it just sort of like I had that experience at the Richie Watch show. So I was like, yeah, okay, well, that's I want, and I had that quote from that philosopher. <laughs> like I had already read that profile of that philosopher that he had that quote about um, self, and then this happened. So I'm like, whatever. I don't know. So it's like. I, well, yeah, but I think I think there's there's something that's really special. And maybe this is what I feel like this new level of like alt comedy, for lack of a better term, is, is people become really transparent with parts of their lives. And especially in a world where we're the most connected, but not connected at all. Yeah. When you realize how lonely we are, that we kind of 
we choose to experience and process emotions vicariously versus examine them on our own. And only in some situations are we able to actually examine them because we're like, oh, like you were talking about, this person is is me. You know, this yeah. is stuff that they, they've dealt with. You know, because I think when we realize that we're all basically the same. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you know, socioeconomic differences aside, but we're all basically the same in that we want to be loved, seen and heard. It makes things a little bit easier, you know, and I think that's like for me what I love the most about comedy. And I, your book really nailed that. Thank you. It's also like little kids, very little kids. They, um, you know, I majored in psychology in college. So like to me, like I think a lot of it's just rooted from just like that's how I think of how people process art. I literally think about how they see art and it goes through their brain. Mm -hmm. And little kids, when they go to therapy, they don't have the vocabulary often. So they'll like play with toys. And the way they play with toys um, is um, ha the therapist will glean things about it, mm -hmm. whatever. It's, it's called play therapy. Um, I should just also know my dad's a psychologist. So oh, like, yeah, I've seen that's his cool. office. So I'll, you know, you'll see toys in your parents' office. You're like, whoa, uh, my mom's a school nurse. So she also probably has toys in her office. But nonetheless, <laughs> and so... Um, <laughs> And I do think, like, actually, like, that is a way a lot of people continue to, you can do play therapy with adults in a lot of ways. If you, if, like, you watch a movie and you talk to your therapist about the movie, mm -hmm. if you are yourself when you watch that movie, the therapist can be like, oh, they're just talking about their divorce. When they're, they're talking, they, like, they want to see any movie. And then they, the way they talk about it, and they're like, oh, this is just the way of, and... When you realize that, then I think when you realize that your re reaction to all media is a reflection of how you consume the world and your brain work, then it allows you to sort of be a, a more fascinated with how you respond to things, even things you don't like, mm -hmm. right? And if you allow yourself to be like, oh, I think if people divorce this idea of things they don't like means it's bad, then it allows you so much more um, insight into yourself and art generally. If you go like, I didn't like people like, <laughs> yeah. so it's not bad. That's just me. Like, I, I can't say things are bad or I don't like to. It's fun, but like, I don't like, I, I try to approach things. Um, in, you know, in the book, I say, if it's funny to two people, then it counts as funny. You can't say any comedy is not funny. So then I just go like, oh, wow, 20 million people think this is what funny is. Yeah. What does that mean about 20 million people in whatever country finds this funny? Like, that's how I approach sort of all of it, which is just sort of like, this is the most famous comedian in, in the world and they're doing this. Yeah, like the how Chappelle that stuff. Happen? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very like, well How said. is that happening? Yeah. So you're like, well, there has to be a reason. Is it mass psychosis or whatever? <laughs> Maybe. But like... There's something that is not as simple as everyone in that room has the same point of view as the jokes in those rooms, right? They're not all, I think it's easy to be like, oh, all X fans are bigots and he's a bigot and they go to be bigoted together because they're all bigots. And it's like, <laughs> that would be easy. And maybe that's the case with some things. But for the most sure. part, it's much more um, fascinating if you allow yourself to just get past the your personal taste. And I, I try to, as much as possible, have less my taste be reflected in the book instead of like and more what i find sort of interesting yeah so i write about a lot of things i like but i also write about a lot of things that i am medium about but just feel like are an interesting example of things which those things are and are not that's a secret well i mean i think that's also the definition of someone who's a professional which i think is great and in the sense like we're in this also era where everyone's like got a hot take or a blog or an influencer yeah, yeah. and when you realize that it's very, you know, so I was more or less a failed stylist for a long sure. time. I was a stylist for these celebrities, whatever. And I realized that what I was good at was learning how to dress 
for myself and I could mm. dress myself well. And the people that I dressed happened to like how I dressed. But what yeah. I didn't really realize is great stylists can help amplify someone's opinions yeah. that they already have, even though they're different than theirs. And I was like, oh, that's what a professional is, is you're able to, you know, you can talk about comedy that you may not find as funny, but you can still do your job and and be a professional and have a discussion yeah. on it, even though it might not be something that personally gets you as excited as, say, X or Y. And yeah, yeah I will say there is a value to critics who have, have have opinions and then the audience knows to go to them about opinions. Mm-hmm. Like that is like sort of the, uh, my colleague, Catherine Van Arendonk, who's a critic in Vulture, often ex- explains what criticism is to me because I sort of, she's smarter than I am. And, and she was like, the goal is internal consistency, which is that a person can be like, a TV show is happening. I agree with everything Catherine says. Let's see what she says. And I need her to be um, clear and, and have an opinion. And so there is a value to that, right? It's it. There is a value to obviously, and I think especially, um, I think like with interviewing is it, closer to I imagine being a stylist, which is like my goal as an interviewer is to be like not to fit the guest into my worldview, mm-hmm. but instead to try to figure out what their worldview is and try to convey that worldview to the listener. Um, because I'm more excited by individual. And like the idea of being an individual and I'm less excited by like having everyone um, be reflected in my sort of one opinion. And I think that that's the same thing I imagine with a stylist, which is like a, if a stylist goes like, I think everyone needs to be wearing gray flannel suits and then everyone's wearing that. No, that's more of a designer, right? A designer, yeah. I imagine, has had a clear perspective and they have to articulate it and they have to think it's correct. I think comedian can't have the perspective I have. You need to know what's funny to get up and do it. Otherwise, you'll you'll have too much self-doubt. You can't be like, oh, maybe all... You have to just be like, this is what I think funny is, and you have to do it. Yeah. And I think that's like, that's a stylist... I think a stylist needs to be more like, my opinion is sort of, I need to step back. I, it's like, I think there's there's different ways you can sort of do both. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I think when you realize everyone is insecure and everyone yeah. wants, no one wants to get like hated on. And so sometimes like what people are attracted to in some cases is just confidence, right? And so yeah. like different, if you just help someone to be confident in whatever they like, you know, that that's, you know, cause that's the thing is like Brad Pitt can wear anything he wants ever and he's yeah. going to look good and no one's going to call it out because it's Brad Pitt. Uh, I don't know what other existing things that he may have may not have done that someone's going to say, oh, but you shouldn't like him because of this. Regardless, the person has been an icon. George Clooney is probably a better example, right? Yeah. Like George Clooney can just wear whatever he wants anytime. People are going to be like, man, George Clooney looks good. And you're like, yeah, yeah. That's because they're confident and they're awesome and everyone, you know, but if you rip the head off of George Clooney and you put someone else's head, wait till you see the hot takes are going to come out of just like that dude wore, he didn't wear a tie and he wore this. And, yeah, that's, you know, that's going to be the take. I was thinking, literally go that George Clooney is the only person he doesn't that wear, can wear suit, shirt, no tie. Yeah. And it looks good mm-hmm. and not s- stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's, or that's, it's just sort of incomplete and. I it's I was I've been thinking about it a lot. I was, I was this is going to be a question for you. It's like a yeah, because you're question, you're now like, a watch guy and you're a clothes guy. I love yeah, yeah. You know, welcome to the club. I just came out here because I had so <laughs> this is this has been almost useful if we did this a few weeks ago because I would have asked you what so like I was on Seth Meyers mm-hmm. and Seth Meyers doesn't wear a suit famously. Yeah, yeah. And female celebrities dress like they're on a late night show because that's what we as a society demand of that every time no matter what they're doing they have to dress like they're they're on a red carpet Mm -hmm. and um elizabeth banks was um the first guest she did that she looked amazing whatever her hair was so cool but 
men on other late night shows just wears they just dress like the host give or take but seth doesn't wear a suit seth wears like sometimes a like a blue sweater sometimes like a jacket but or and sometimes just like like a thicker bud down shirt it's so wild anyway so he, yeah. that's what he wears and so then i did a lot of research I'm like what are men wearing <laughs> on the show what do you what so what would you suggest what do you guess I don't know if you know I mean, what I ended up wearing, but I wanted to no, I, I watched was curious. It. I watched it. Oh, thanks. Yeah, come on. Jeez. What, what kind of person? But I'm curious what you, what you would have suggested or what do you imagine people doing? Like, Well, I think there's two things. One, I think it's a power move to try to look better than the host. And I think it's yeah. very easy to do that with specifically someone like Seth Meyers because there's not really a uniform. Like Colbert, first off, exists on his own because of whatever accomplishments, et cetera. And also he always wears a suit. And so it's it, specifically in, in the menswear world, it's very difficult. You're just wearing a suit too versus yeah. on Seth Meyers, you can actually kind of sartorially dunk on someone. Not that that should mm-hmm. be the reason that you're doing it, but you can kind of raise the bar a little bit in in how you you know dress and present yourself. I think you know we're also in this weird era of whether or not people wear ties, whether is it wearing a tie a curmudgeon or wearing it or not. But I think Seth Meyers on TV, and, and I don't mean this in a rude way. He this is actually a very good skill is to dress very like forgettable. You look yeah. good when you're there, but when someone's trying to remember what you wore, they don't really know. And I think that's like a, mm. a very cool skill set to have because you can just exist and people always remember you for who you are versus what you wore. Yeah. And so if I'm you, every press tour, anything that's I'm on stage, I'm wearing at least bare minimum sport coat mm. at all times. And then you could wear a collared shirt with a v-neck you could wear a tie with denim you know Mm. and i think that's the thing is it's like well is it old if i wear a tie with you know (laughs) with a suit or do i wear a tie you know and so it's like you kind of like do this high low thing in which you know what i would always tell people is like sure wear wear denim but wear an oxford and a tie and Mm. you know shoes or wear a suit and wear a, a more comfortable loafer or sneaker yeah you know I mean, I think in most cases, if you just look at any lookbook of, say, like Brunello Cuccinelli or, you know, any Laura Piana stuff or just find cool old photos of Paul Newman, you're going to you're done, you know. Um, But I think that that's kind of my take on on this sort of large viewer professional Mm -hmm. thing, because a lot of people like, oh, I'm just going to wear Todd Snyder, which I think makes perfect sense, which is what I do. Yeah. So. (laughs) Uh, so, and you're, because it's like, oh, it's like a suit, but like it was, um, Donegal, is that the word? Mm -hmm. So it's like Navy suit, but like, I was like, and I was like, I don't even know if it's going to pick up on camera, but you'll be able to tell this is not, um, a Ludlow suit and you'll, you know, (laughs) and you'll be able to tell it's something's different. And, um, okay. So I knew I had a green Todd Snyder suit that I bought, assuming I was going to wear for my book launch and I'd wear it on Seth Meyers. And then I got a hole in it. So I, and I've been trying to figure out what to do with this hole to fix it. So it's, I couldn't wear that. How'd you get a hole, hole. in it? I don't know. Okay. I just do. Fair. And it's in the pants and you would see it. So then I go, I can't wear that. I want to wear a full suit because I don't like just sports coats on my, I, I don't like, I like what it looks like when the top and bottom match, whatever. Basically, I think it looks better. Um, So I reach out to Todd Snyder. PR and was like, can I have a suit? And they're like, maybe. And then they're like, and I was like, can I get this one suit, this one Donegal suit? I also ordered this suit Black Friday. Mm-hmm. Of course, it didn't and, arrive in time, I assume. And it, of course, it didn't arrive in time. Yeah. And yeah. also, Todd Snyder's like, we can't get you the suit. We can do these other suits. One was um, Herringbone, which you can't wear on TV because uh, it will moray, I assumed. 
I'm, I wasn't I'm sure, unfamiliar with that term. What? When you wear like textured, like tweedy fabric, especially black and white on TV, it will do this visual effect. Well, I don't, it's called Moray, which is like, it looks like, ooh. Oh, okay. I, I'm the visual totally version unfamiliar. of Moray. Yeah. So then I went to the Todd Snyder store mm-hmm. for this suit in particular, and um, it fit off the rack. Perfect. Mm-hmm. With the sweater underneath. Um, and, but my plan was to return it after it was on Seth Meyers. That is extremely common. So it fit off the rack, which is unbelievable. It fits so well that I was like, this is, this is so rare that I should, it's almost like I should keep it, but I don't need it. Cause even if I somehow on Seth Meyers again, I can't wear the exact same suit probably. So, um, I had to, um, the thing that I didn't think about was the tag on the sleeve, but they shoot you, your angle is from your right side or whatever. But the only time you're on your left side, which is where the tag is, is when you're coming out. So I was like, okay, there's no way to avoid this. So when I come out, I have to do like three steps, then essentially wave to the audience uh-huh. until my back is turned. Okay. So that you can't see the tag. And you kind of can see a little bit, but not, you'd have to really know that I'm doing it. So now I'm like, whatever it's called, selling myself out. Um, I also then ended up putting my watch on the inside of my wrist. So it would even distract even more in case anyone's even looking at my left hand. Um, so then I sit down. And then I didn't realize there was like a sticker on the bottom of my shoe from like, and this was an old sh- shoes that I, I owned. Didn't they catch just that. Was, yeah. And, and some people it still looks like I just have a like a white rectangle on the bottom of my shoe, and that's how the shoe's supposed to be. Yeah. But anyway, I was able to return the suit. It was great. Thank you, Todd Snyder, for your service. Um, but yeah, so I wear sweater underneath suit. Yeah. And I and I was talking to people at work, and I was like, yeah, I ended up just watching every single man who was on the show to see what they wore. And everyone was essentially, other than Paul Rudd, who wore tie. And I was like, I bet that's because, one, that's what Paul Rudd does. Two, Paul Rudd can do what he wants. He's so famous. Everyone wore a sweater under a sports coat or a sweater under a suit. And they're like, yeah, they're like, yeah that's what we tell people to, <laughs> to wear. I was like, oh, I just sort of backed it. I could have asked this whole time. I, I think what's interesting is I don't know if, I first off, I've, I've met Seth Meyers once, but I have no you know, we're not buddies or anything. Yeah. Uh, I have nothing against him. But like, I think great. he probably creates far more problems for guests and his team by refusing to wear a standard suit on a television show like that. He is in an era and an echelon of TV that is still something that like we as Americans refuse to let people evolve from. And that's what they wear. Um, yeah. Because there is a level of, you know, and this is actually probably a sexist thing because if if it was a woman, they could kind of wear whatever. But with yeah. men, it's like, no, you, we can't take you serious unless you have serious clothing on, which there is nothing else other than a suit. Yeah, it is. I think the argument for it is that this is what Seth looks like when he's not on camera. Mm-hmm. I, I do. I do wonder what it's like to be the stylist for the show where they have to find no, so many just regular shirts because yeah. you can't wear the same shirt every day. So they must have like a thousand just regular Navy sweaters. But this is how he dresses. And the show is a reflection of him. Yeah. And it's like, it makes him feel like he comes off like a writer, um, which is sort of what he is. And I remember, and like where Conan, when Conan shipped his show, shifted to 30 minutes. Yeah. And, and he started wearing bomber jackets and Oxfords and yeah. And a tie <laughs> and jeans. And I was like, I don't know if this is working for me. Um, but because I don't know, because I can't imagine he's wearing a tie um off stage like Correct. i don't think conan is going to record his podcast it goes time to wear conan will do my podcast <laughs> denim shirt yeah, denim true. jacket button down oxford shirt tie the patterns all these things tucked in like that is 
I don't know if anyone dresses like that. No. Denim. It just is like such a combination of things. And so that's why I think I had a hard time with that. I was like, this is sort of like too much like you had, there was meetings about what casual looked like unless, oh, I'm just going to wear what I wear. Well, it's interesting because you're also scratching at the fact that a lot of these shows have more viewership on the internet in short forms than they do like watching the show from start to finish the way it was like traditional late night. And so if when they're yeah. on your phone more, it I imagine, I don't have any evidence of this, but I imagine it, it may be more jarring to see that person looking more formal than it would yeah. be to having but them it, look like some sort of thing. It does provide context, yeah. which is nice. But I think, um, I think it's best for people who like, Colbert seems like a guy who would wear a suit if he could. Like, I think I've heard him in interview goes like, I love wearing a suit. Yeah. Really good suits. I imagine it's really nice to wear. I have no idea. Like, we're Fallon. I think it's fine wearing a suit because it's the Tonight Show. And it's like, it must be like, we're going out tonight is mm-hmm. the vibe. Mm-hmm. I once wrote a post about how you should start wearing glasses again. I agree. Um, I think you should wear glasses again. Because he, but he, he got LASIK. I was like, just, I remember uh, Gagosha, which is a glasses store in LA. I was like, I talked to, I, I got glasses from there a while ago but i asked them and they're like most of the glasses we sell don't have prescription lenses in it and this was a while ago who knows anymore but like i was like yeah jimmy fallon just start wearing glasses it'd be wild <laughs> if he's like geek chic you'd bring back geek chic there'd be an article in gq about jimmy fallon bringing back geek chic um anyway and then kimmel i don't know kimmel is like figured out how to become an elder statesman mm-hmm. but he also he has a beard i think that sort of saves jimmy kimmel vibe he can wear a suit because he has a beard yeah um but yeah, I don't know. It's it's anyways. I was like, I wonder what I should have done. I think I I was ha- I thought I looked great. I felt like I, honestly, I was like, um, were you comfortable? Yeah, I was then like, looks good. This is how it, honestly I would dress like that every day if it wasn't for the fact um, that I spill food on myself. Yeah, this is my biggest. This is my biggest hurdle to dressing nicer or dressing fancier. I guess I, I think I dress okay, but like the thing that's my biggest hurdle is that if I bought um, a two hundred and fifty dollar Oxford from Drake's instead of like a on sale. $60 Oxford from J. Crew. Every, I would live my life in fear. I think that's, that's also a thing that's really common with anyone where like, you know what it, you know what it's like to not have money. Cause yeah. I'm like that too, in which I grew up, you know, with not much money. My dad didn't make much, whatever. It's fine. Um, and so even when I get something really nice, I will kind of, it just marinates in my wardrobe yeah. for a while because I'm a little bit scared to wear it. And I'm like, well, I, I did just get this thing from Jake Muser and I'm a little, well, if I wear it, what if something, uh, you know, what if I have my son and he gets a runny nose on it and, you know, and then I got it. And so I find myself, especially at home, I'll wear t-shirts and baggies, like Patagonia baggies, 99% of the time because I'm more comfortable in it because of whatever can happen. And a friend of mine only recently was like, no, no, no. All that stuff is just memories. He's like, you get the, you get the Easy for that friend to say. Yeah, he's also That sounds like a person who always had nice clothes you're right like very nice clothes. this person has an ivy league education and, yeah. and is very lives in a very affluent area and is extremely wealthy and so it's not it's not a hit to go buy a shirt from drake's you know um he's not sitting up late at night on ebay looking for the you know yeah. the holy of holies to to find its way to their door yeah i think i think that's correct I think those clothes are made for that person. Yeah. Like they, because I don't think most of the fashion brands that I even look at are thinking of it as special pieces. They're like, oh, this is an everyday piece. We're going to do like the perfect Oxford shirt that you'll have your entire life, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, 
if I have it my entire life, it's going to be have stains all over yeah. it. And I'll never. So it's like I, this hoodie, which I it's an entire world hoodie. And I it's it was really nice. And it was like, all right, like hand wash. I know. And it was like hand wash. Only, and I only got it because it was their I think it was their um, clearance sale when they were going out of business. But it was like, it's a nicer hoodie than I have. And I was being so precious about it. I was like, it's a hoodie. <laughs> but like, I truly like I'll wear it today. But like, I'm not going to wear it around my kid. That'd be like crazy. And it's like, it's a hoodie. But like, yeah, it'd be nice to be like, oh, I'll see the spit up on that hoodie in four years. Yeah, and be, and be like, like, oh, I remember beautiful. that day. Like, no, no way. I'll remember that. Um, Your hoodie's messed up. I should have. <laughs> my hoodie's messed up. <laughs> so it's that. And in some ways that's to the watches thing, which is like, oh, well, like that could be a thing. And they are, they could be. Um, I'm not as worried about getting them messy, though obviously there's concerns that you'll like accidentally bang into them or whatever. But like, at least it's like a thing that I can express a stylistic taste without literally being like, oh, I'm going to get soy sauce on it and ruin it. I mean, that that is the best part of watches. I mean, I, I've said this in tons of times. I got into watches for the wrong reason because I recognized that they were a status symbol and I wanted that oh, level yeah. of status. But during that time, I truly, truly fell in love with watches. And so it's been, you know, a decade plus at least of me yeah. just loving watches and buying it. I mean, they're, they're just basically my baseball cards. That's really all it is. You know, I buy and I sell them and I just like to get into them yeah. and argue over dumb things and revisionist history. And there's so much that's kind of guarded and gatekept and you can kind of force your way into it. But I absolutely love and adore watches for that reason. And if I had a lot of money, I'm sure it'd be me with like Porsches or something, right? I mean, but instead it's watches. And I got in on some watches at the right time. Yeah, yeah. That no one gave a shit about like vintage Seikos. And all of a sudden they're worth like 10x what I paid for them. And so... Yeah, I assume yeah. they were probably worth like $50 now. So it's like 10x can be like $500 for 50. Oh, yeah. Or some that were like 800 or now. But it is... Um, it's so that's the that's the part of it like that you don't as a person who only started but like and did not collect to flip because the idea of flipping it gives me anxiety Correct. and sounds so boring but you can't not want that right <laughs> it's like and it shouldn't be affirming to taste because i do think often the more expensive watches look worse and people with money have bad taste there's certain so, watches that i don't wear at certain times because i don't want someone to make an incorrect assumption where it's like if i wear my rolex daytona i'm like anyone who makes a comment on it i'm like do you have 15 minutes so i can explain to you how i sold this and bought this and flipped this yeah, and did, yeah, you know yeah, yeah. like I'm, you don't want to be like i just bought it because i i watched the paul newman documentary bingo. and like, i thought yeah, it'd be cool i'm not just it. some rich dude no 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 no, no. hold on l l let me you know it's i i think that with watches and i don't like the watch that I wore on Seth Meyers, which I'm wearing now, which is a universal genetic. Which is right? now going to be worth a gajillion I know, that's that, I know. Well, that's the thing. It's like, I shouldn't care that Breitling bought universal genetic, partly because like the watch I have is not, is not going to be first or second or third in line of their reissues, right? They'll do compacts and then they'll do, maybe they'll do the white shadow. Or polar outers and, this and all is, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they'll do pole riders, which I um, thought looked okay, but I was just like, and this is a, a very slim. It's beautiful. Watch. Yeah, I I got it because it um, it uh, the patina on it makes it look like a, a galaxy or whatever, and I was like, well, this is a thing that looks individual. I'm fine wearing small watches before you know, in a year from now, I'll be like one of the nine million people in New York wearing a small watch. But <laughs> I did feel like I was open to it earlier. Uh -huh. Um, but even I'm like, oh, there's like at five times, 10 times more likely people will know what this brand is now or not now in a year than they did now. And yeah, maybe I can resell this 
There you go. But I don't want to. But like it, I can't. You can't not because that's part of like to follow watches is to like care about these things. And 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 part of like my relationship to it is like conspiratorial. Like I I don't want to like you know I've talked about this in other places, but this is like a place where like people and I assume in the watch world listen. So I don't want to don't want people to like blacklist me. No, but I'm just I'm just like it all is so i'm so skeptical of a lot of it and oh. because it, and people are doing and it because it's so much money mm-hmm. there's just something about things have value because people say they have that value mixed with influencers that makes things very complicated mixed with there not being as a real structure of independent watch journalism you're talking about press trips all of it <laughs> i'm talking about like that we i don't know that like all right four years an example i think is so specific that no one would be that mad that like ed sheeran and john mayer could talk about their watches mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. which the fact that they do it alone makes all that conversation just increase the value of all the watches they talked about mm-hmm. but then they could have a conversation about if they would get the spider-man royal oak or whatever yeah if that's what is it is. That the AP the one, Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, one of the ugliest things that's ever been made. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And talk about if they would get it. And they're like, if you get it, I'll get it, whatever. And then they, them having that conversation, that conversation happened on Ho Dinky, them doing it, mm-hmm. then them buying it, then took this thing, which actually should be worth $0 because it's the ugliest thing that's ever been made, and makes it worth $800,000. Yeah. That is, what? No one can stop and be like, editor, editor, editor's note, this is looks like, like a little baby's toy. And not in a kitschy way. Like, it actually just looks... Si- anyway, so then I... No one can point that out. Like, and and so that's what I'm talking about, where I'm like, we... Um, there's been versions of this in sort of the art world. Yeah, at I was going to say, that's welcome have, to the art in general. Yes, but at least the art world can have some people be like, just so you know, like, this is ugly. Because here's... Yeah, here's the thing about that stuff, too, because... You know, if I could, I would be Indiana Jones and I would just blow up every free port, you know, and I don't mean actually blow up. That's not a threat. But like I would just like remove all art from every free port and put everything in museums because it just becomes a way to evade taxes and, you know, generational wealth, et cetera. But like I am totally with you where there's a lot of watches specifically that get and a lot of brands that get um, magnified. I know a handful of journalists and individuals who have made social media content. I know watch dealers who have artificially talked about how good a brand is. And I knew for a fact that they were paying them. Like if the, if the FCC got involved in this stuff, they would, I know this is, it would be, it'd be a pretty big deal actually. I mean, there's, there's very huge dealers that are, that are known and respected that have made content talking about this watch that's coming out and how important it is and how special it is. And I know in the group chats that we're in, they would just did it to move on to something else or they just did it to get paid. The problem is there's not really transparency there. And it's also, which I imagine this coming from you, you care about this now. And so yeah. you feel misled because you're looking to these people to guide you in your, you know, your orological journey, more or less. And that, yeah. that just becomes a bigger thing where it's like at the end of the day, if you're going to like watches, like what you like, be 100% unabashed about yeah. it. And everyone else doesn't really matter, you know, yeah. and, and and I think that becomes this this narrow way of looking at art into which does it move you? Do you like it? Therefore, it's great. Do you I have a friend who loves Panerai. I'm not a fan of it. I've never been a huge fan. And that's apart from all the other different things they've done. I'm just, I'm not a Panerai guy. They make good yeah. watches, but like, that's not my thing. 
And a friend of mine is obsessed with them. He thinks they're the greatest watches ever. He loves all the Italian stuff. And I'm just like, whatever. The difference is, am I going to be an asshole and say that they're shit bad watches? Or am I just going to say they're not for me? Yeah. And I think there's a big difference. And people love the dunk. They love the hot take on it. Yeah. And the thing is, like, we, I I get more frustrated that, like, you know, this is relatively recent. And I and I say, like, I was radicalized by YouTube, which was that, like, it started because I was watching Pawn Stars clips. And then Pawn Stars <sighs> clips show led to antique, and, <laughs> antique Roadshow clips. Yeah. And then there's the famous Antique Roadshow clips with the Rolex that was in the whatever, and he gets a million dollars. And then if you watch that enough times, so like maybe we'll want to watch Teddy Baldassar or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And next, you know, all I do is watch, watch. Teddy videos. is now an AD, by the way, which I think is also interesting. <laughs> but so it's like you see a coalescing of like opinions about like, well, these are the watch brands that we talk about, mm-hmm. which is like Rolex, Paddock, AP. Mm-hmm. Vacheron is like not as a notable thing, even though like I imagine to the rich 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 people it's still like a main thing mm-hmm. even though they're and and then and like we all wear steel or what like you're just a coalesces in and everyone's wearing sports watches and no one's doing the things and i've always had a distaste of people wearing clothes or things for jobs they don't do mm-hmm. so when everyone buys dive watches and like there's like oh i just remember seeing a watch that i liked i think it's a grand seiko that i was considering getting because i was going to get like one nice watch when i finished the, the, the book and um I have his TV project and there's a Grand Seiko I really, really liked. It's a GMT. And they're like, the problem is it only has 50 meters of water resistance. I was like, what do you think I'm going to be doing with this watch that I spent more money on than anything? And that, but that counts. Wait, that did was you get the, the watch? Again. No, I didn't. <gasps> so I'll show you the watch. I, so the watch I did get, this is, so I realized my favorite watch that's ever existed, and I have her next, is uh, the Futuramatic. You know the Futuramatic? The JLC Futuramatic. It's beautiful, yeah. It's my favorite watch ever. Um, in my experience of just like looking at watches and just like going brand by brand and going decade by decade and being like on Chrono 24, being like, this is now what I do instead of going on Twitter, right? <laughs> and I go, my favorite watch ever is Futuramatic. One, because I love um the 1960s, like Jetson type thing where you're like, what the 60s thought the future was going to be like. Mm-hmm. So they have words that are like spacey and, but like are just portmanteaus or they just whatever. So Futuramatic to me is one of the most 1960s ideas of what the, future is going to look like type words and i love the font it has lots of different fonts work on it the way it says power reserve is sort of so different and i like this little circle blah blah mm-hmm. i think it looks like a funny face um and there's w- one steel version i think i've ever seen ever and i was like well i'd love it if it's in steel and there's one guy in italy who has it in steel on instagram he's like i don't know if i'd ever sell it blah blah but if he did sell i'm sure he'd want to sell it for nine times what i paid for this sure which is gold plated and then i realized this watch was designed in gold like this watch was designed at a time where gold plated or gold was the main way people were buying watches. When they thought about the colors, it was gold. I should buy the piece as it was con- considered. So I shouldn't buy a gold watch because gold watches aren't in or whatever. And then, and th- so that's how I decided on. Um, and so that's why I got instead of the, the, Grand Seiko. My problem with Grand Seiko was too thick. It's just it's it was it was not even that big. It was just like really thick, and I and I don't I just didn't like the look of it. I I feel like I would bang into things too much. So I have the uh, the Shunbun, um, the the SBGA. Like yeah. the Grand Seikos are cool. They are very chunky. Specifically, if you go for the movements that I think are the most exciting, which are like the high beats, like the spring drive yeah. and the high beats. The the spring drive is huge because it's basically two movements in one. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I tell everyone, and I have no problem saying this because Grand Seiko is not paying me at all. Like, I would say 99% of Grand Seiko bracelets are forgettable. 
to be diplomatic. Mm. The trick is if if you're going to buy a Grand Seiko, immediately take the bracelet off and put it on a leather strap because it'll make the watch be a thousand times better. I mean, I would wear this watch yeah. all the time. And then I took I took the bracelet off and I got a strap, like a nice strap. I like, like D-lugs or whatever. And yeah. um, and everyone's like, that watch is so incredible. And you're like, yeah, that's right, motherfucker. Because I just changed the strap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's the funniest that was the first thing i i learned which is that like so often when you don't know anything about watches the first thing you go like well i don't like straps like that you're like well that's actually not the main part yeah. of it other than like whatever integrated bracelets or whatever but like um so the only thing i have is metal strap is that my casio right which is like the i don't know this the, is that's the still one. the greatest watch i mean i have it at my desk the little digital yeah it's the one yeah I, it's what i wear that one this one is this is like truly so light. The Geneva I have is so light that it is lighter than even that Casio. It's like, it is ridiculous how thin it is that we as a society have gotten, like, <laughs> it is, it, it's so quiet. It's just so, it's fascinating. Like, so I have three watches that are all from the 60s. And every time, like, I shouldn't have to get another watch from the 60s. I should, I want to buy a quartz watch. It'll be so much cheaper if I need to get it fixed. You're just like, oh, cool. Well, swap it out yeah i mean that's that's the where i like managed to do well is like i got really into the watches from the 70s because at the yeah. time when i was getting into watches they were really the only vintage i could afford like yeah yeah and that it's i think it's still some of the most fun and it's the most weird watches like if you look up like the omega like cosmics and stuff and the weird patek yeah, tv yeah. dials and the betas and all that stuff you can get them for pretty you know less than a thousand bucks and they're really weird yeah. and People will, you know, and I think at the end of the day, what's funny too, is this is the same way about clothes where it's like, you're not really getting it for yourself. You're getting it for like some random person who is in the tiny micro niche world as you, who's like, I see that watch. That's really nice. Yeah. Or one person <laughs> asks you a question because they're like, that's the weirdest watch I've ever seen. I didn't like I, the, my plan was if I was going to get another watch was like, there's this, the eighties Omegas are so odd mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and they just made like weird bracelets to go with weird watches and the color schemes are so weird. I was like, I'm going to get one of those will be coarse, whatever. Um, and then I found this, but it's like, yeah. Cause then you're just like, oh, it's this, like even the Futurmatic, I like, I, I, I haven't even gone deep on it, but what I like is like, oh, it almost bankrupts a company. Yeah. That watch, right. They'll be like, what's that watch? It's like, oh, it does this as a power reserve. It's kind of wonky. It's like too complicated. They designed it maybe 10 years before they had the technology to do it. And it was so costly. It almost bankrupt this company. That's one of the main companies. I'm like, oh, it's a cool story. So cool. I have one <laughs> thing to say about the plot. And then like the 80s things, I, you can't just, there is something like, I'm not like other girls that collect quartz watches from the 80s that I want to have if I ever find myself around watch people mm. who like have an Aquanaut or whatever. I'm like, wow, that's great that your career has led to you at this point. And I think it's a cool looking thing, but it's like, yeah, but I, I spent like hours finding this watch that was only released in Turkey. And just and and I'm more gutsy because I bought a watch from whoever from some private seller yeah. from whoever'sville, and I hope it's real. But also, it's so cheap that like I guess even if it's not, then like that's that you know they accept that as well. And I think it's like, but what will just will happen? Like, and I, that's the thing that I I find so frustrating is you see people whose tastes lean seventies, eighties. Yeah, they get a they, but they all it's like they have enough money that they collect both. Like they're like we have you know whatever the, the the main watches of the day but then they also have these 70s 80s things but then they like will post more and more of these 70s 80s stuff and then like all they're doing is creating a market for this watch that didn't exist well i mean i think that's that's the thing right is because there are maybe depending on who you're into like there's people like ben clymer whom you know he whether he wants to or not he has the ability to shape the watch market by what he likes john mayer is probably the best example yeah, yeah. you know where he made that yellow gold 
Green Dial Daytona, which is now called like the Mayor Daytona, one of the hottest yeah. watches that was a very slept on watch because he liked it. And that like- Yeah, and said, and said it was slept on. Yeah, yeah. It was all of it. He goes, I, so then you, I just, rem- yeah. I remember I went to the Breitling store because it was near where our old office was. And I looked at a watch and they're like, oh, you watched that video with Mr. Wonderful. And I felt so embarrassed that I was like, I would never again will care about a watch that's talked about on any of these things. Yeah. I mean, first off, the last thing I would ever want to look like is that clown, that savage know, capitalist it, clown. No, thank you, I Mr. Know, Wonderful. It, <laughs> anyway, so that, that, but yeah, it is, it is knowing that and telling people it is fun to tell people like hey just so you know john mayer this person you haven't thought about is like the most powerful person in it in a billion dollar industry who has like the power to move to make an item worth hundreds of thousands of dollars this guy the job the my your body is a wonderland guy is like a power player on the highest level it, it's you it's fun if i can imagine it's fun if a thing you have is now worth more but it's ultimately like that's you just have to like it and then if some reason you know you're paying for you need you need it you can be like oh does anything have value now like i think there's there's too much of a history of bad actors in this space (laughs) decades yeah before you were born people were scamming people with this stuff on a really 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 high level that it's like you you don't have the technology to investigate like you literally have to open these things up and be like oh wait no that sprocket is the is a replace <laughs> and because it's a different sprocket i'd either have to spend the next five years sourcing this 90 year old gasket or whatever these things are or just accept that like that's the part of what i'm trying to do with this futuromatic which i've decided to be like you know what maybe it is frankenstein together but if so wow they frankenstein this really complicated watch uh-huh. to work that i'm not gonna sell it and there you go i it's almost like if you accept like that's why i like that that this watch is flawed on purchase you're like great cool like, that's what it is. You know, if I had tons of money and decided to spend my entire life flipping watches, then sure, I'd have a different thing. But I don't think I have the brain for it. Yeah, or, or the time and the patience. I, but I think, like, you made the case for why watches are the most fun is because you're like, look, I, I did this. It's just for me. Everybody, you guys just got to chill out. And that's why that's why I'm like, I when I, that's why I get annoyed when there's a coalescing around only certain sort of watches being the thing, which is like, literally, you could have the most specific taste ever. <laughs> yeah. And you're choosing to just like get a date just, and which is great. Like, it's fine. But it's like, you literally, at that price point, you essentially have access to like such a wide array yeah. of specific things. And to me, like, I think it's more fun to be like, oh, I could spend one year learning about all things to decide what is my thing. But if you're just like, I just want a thing that looks like it, you're like, cool, I'll, then here are the five watches they recommend to middle-class people. <laughs> then you're just like, right? It's just like, here's the tutor you can get if you're a middle-class person. Here's the, the Rolex you can afford. And then there's like all the small brands. And and I find, to me, I find that to be a scam. Uh, not a scam, but like, I find it frustrating where it's like, or you could just be like, all these brands 30 years ago had all these weird watches that just like don't look like what investment bankers want to put on their wrist. And as a result, if you think it's something you want to put on your wrist, you can get like, as we said, like a quartz movement. Like even if you had more money, you can get a paddock that's quartz that's like reasonable. Yeah, yeah. You get like a dress watch, God forbid. That's all out there, especially like old ellipses and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, yeah, I know. It's like if that's like my... It's like my dream watch is like to have an ellipse, right? It's, which is not the wild. I think you'll, until... you'll hit it soon. Get 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 book two going. Yeah, an ellipse price. But <laughs> yeah, I need to do it before the uh, market shifts to be like, actually, we all wear dress watches now, right? It's like, it's Cartier, the gateway to everyone starting it to is. wear dress watches. The fact that people are just like, 
starting to show, well, because at the end of the day is everyone wants to separate themselves from someone else and, and, you know, um, communicate their taste, you know, yeah. and these like weird sort of, you know, telekinesis ways or whatever we want to do. Uh, and I think now it's like, oh yeah, I'm wearing, oh, this is, you know, Grand Seiko had that moment, I think for a bit, but now it's like any watch that's like vintage on a leather strap that someone can't really tell by getting close, you know? So yeah. I think that, yeah, that is like this new era yeah, that we're th- in. There's other Cartier shapes that I, there's one Cartier shape that I really love that I won't say because I don't want it to become a hot shape. I want it still to be an accessible shape there you go. to me. And I and it's like, don't reissue it. I just need it to sort of like fall to history because it's like, what if it literally, it's like one Tyler, the creator away from becoming <laughs> An $80,000 watch. Yeah. That's truly, really, it's just like literally Tyler Creator is just like, who knows how he does his thing, but he's like, what about this shape? Like, all right, you know, he, he's collecting them all. So then it's like, I don't know. But, you know, maybe I, if anyone's listening to this who wants to publish a memoir, if I can, if you can promise me so much money that I can buy these watches, maybe I'll do it. But short of that, I think I'm fine finding these weird little things from there's like a lot of uh people like through instagram that do like who like weird little brands like i got into i was gonna buy a juvenea or juvenea and if you look at them they all look like um 60s 70s 80s paddocks but you would have no idea because it's just like this nothing brand and um so there's if you yeah get into any car and i think there's a lot of fun there yeah there's like you can become the king or queen of these sort of like weird little things and then if you become famous then become famous then 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 there'll be 10x just because you became famous yeah like in any graph i think is 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 out there for sure which people can get and i mean those are um but i like yeah that that's just a fun brand especially like companies that don't really exist anymore it'll be interesting if ug like like skyrockets or plummets in some ways we'll see I mean, I don't have a lot yeah, of yeah. hopes on Brightwing, but, you know, but I think that th- they're going to make some stuff that'll be fun. So it's just sort of like a no brainer because of the things that are already like the things that people care about. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like it seems so easy being like, well, like if we reissue this. Yeah. Hodinky will write a story about it and then they'll do it. And then I mean, I like it's easy to do the step one, which is like, how can we introduce a mar- watch and then it will be twenty thousand dollars or something like that. Like how it then becomes the next year. Then you. Then we're back to the sort of Ed Sheeran's of the world. Deciding. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's the idea that you're like, come on, Ed Sheeran, <laughs> like this. Who would have thought? There you go. Like some Swiss person has to care so much about what Ed Sheeran likes. It's so f- funny. It's just like, a, it, to me, it's like a funny idea that you're like, what do you tell people who like the watch influencers are? It's like Tyler, the creator makes sense. It's like, yeah, sure. It's Tyler, the creator, creator and Pharrell, but it's also the guy, that little guy who plays Spider-Man. That guy too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Jesse, thank you. Thank you so much for chatting. Thank you for indulging. This was great. So it's great to meet you. Thank you for having me. See you, man. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lowell and our theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pod with a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars or thumbs up on whatever other thing you're listening to us on whether it's dingledorp or bing bong whatever it's called but you can also follow us on instagram for all the hot content if you want to talk to us and give us your hot take we'd love to hear from you you can send us an email at info at last but not least super ultra important if i had a air horn i would press it right now you got to come and join us over on patreon because the fun never stops over there look the the, the live show the, the the free show whatever you want to call this we take breaks here and there but patreon it never stops and we also got exclusive shows like die workwear hosted by Derek guy and peter zatolo and the triple j show hosted by 
yours truly with uh, John Moy and Gene Deleon. There's there's just a ton of stuff over there. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash blammo. If not, no worries. We got hundreds and hundreds of free episodes in the feed and uh, more to come. So we will see you all soon. 